we left off somewhere last time in our discussion between Judges uh, 2 verses 11 through 19, and I know Brad had discussed this to some degree, I wanted to say a few more things about it. One of the points that I wanted to state that I didn't state last time, the statement is made in 2.14 when it describes God punishing His people. It talks about the fact He sold them into the hands of enemies who oppressed them. One of the things that's interesting about that expression is that is what God told Israel not to do when he told them, if you have a Hebrew slave, do not sell him to a foreign nation. And yet God is doing this. God is selling them to other nations in order to be servants to him. It says the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hand of plunderers who plundered them. Sin, uh, punishment, They cry to the Lord, and the Lord raises a deliverer. One of the questions that I ask you, and I forgot some of the questions that I ask. I may need some help with that. But in 2 verse 17, it says they did not listen to their judges. They played the harlot after their other gods. They bowed themselves down to them. And they turned aside quickly from the way which your fathers had walked. They turned aside quickly. Did any of you find that expression elsewhere? They turned aside quickly. Okay. They turned aside quickly. I, I think that may be used in verse 18 as well. I had down Exodus 32 verse 8. Yes, that's correct. Okay, Exodus 32 verse 8. And uh, also in uh, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 9 verse 12 and verse 16. Now, when Deuteronomy is recording this event, when Deuteronomy makes that statement, it's talking about the same event as Exodus 32. And what is the event under discussion? The golden calf. calf. They turned aside quickly to worship the golden calf. So Israel's history in the book of Judges is kind of a prolonged worshiping the golden calf in a certain sense. They're going to turn aside quickly from what their judges instruct them and the way they instruct them to go. Deuteronomy 9 uses this as exhibit A that Israel is a stubborn people. And so the fact that it characterizes this time of the judges shows us how vastly different this time of judges will be than the book of Joshua, where generally the people were faithful. So they did not listen to their judges. Here the judges appear as teachers. We really don't see that in the book of Judges. We see that with Samuel in 1 Samuel 
uh, chapters 4 through 7, we don't see it as much in Judges, but this tells us that was part of their purpose. They did not listen to their judges. They played the harlot after other gods, bowed down to them, turned aside quickly. And the Lord would raise up judges because he was moved to pity by their groaning. In this book, we will see the holiness and wrath of God. And we will see the long-suffering and compassion of God as well. And in this case, in Judges 2 verses 16 through 18, there's really nothing that led to that. There's no crying out to the Lord from the people that's expressly mentioned. But God was moved to pity by their groaning and because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. In verse uh, 19, it came about when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them to bow down to them as they did not uh, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. The book of Judges is not just cyclical. You see some of that, but you also see a downward spiral in the book of Judges. Things become progressively worse according to verse 19. Now, what are some things that I should have pointed out that I didn't or, or questions that you still have on that section of verses um, 11 through 19? Okay. Let's look at 220 through 36. 220 through 36. And, and I ask you a couple of questions about this. I know uh, one, God's purpose in leaving the nations. And also, what does it mean that God wanted the people to learn war? But let's look at verses uh, 20 through 23. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which the Lord, which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So God's anger burned against Israel. It says the nation transgressed. They transgressed His covenant. And it's now remember the word covenant. God had said in verse 1 that he would not, God said he would not violate the covenant with the people. Not violate the covenant with the people. But we hear, we read here in 2.20 that the people transgressed God's covenant. What God said He would not do in His relationship with them, they do. 
I want you to notice this in verse 20. And admit, I would have missed this with not the help of a good commentary. How does God refer to Israel in verse 20? How does He refer to them? It's not, it's not a trick question. This nation. This nation. This nation. Doesn't that sound a little bit distant to you? This nation. The word that's used for nation is sometimes used for Israel. Sometimes used of Israel. But usually used for the pagan nations. An illustration of that is right here in this context. In this context, in verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. Verse 23 says the same thing. Now, that uses the same word that in verse 20 is used for Israel. And so in a certain sense, Israel has become like the nations. They have followed in their path. And God says, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, they have not listened to my voice. They didn't listen to God's voice in verse 2. They don't listen to it here in verse 20. They didn't listen to the voice of the judges in verse 17. And it says, the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he said, his penalty is he will not drive them out any longer. And we stated the other day that that penalty was a just penalty for their crime. They failed to drive them out. They are penalized in not being... um, God won't drive them out for them. And that warning was given in Joshua 23. Now the idea of God testing Israel is going to be found three times. That word testing is the same word used for example in Genesis 22.1 when God tested Abraham. What's, what's the idea here? God testing Israel. I mean, it could be uh, <coughs> trying to see if they will remain faithful. Here's this problem. Here's this issue. Are you going to remain faithful or are you going to fail the test that you've been given and, okay. and fall away and okay. hang out with the deals again? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, you'll state it here in verse to test whether they will keep my way, as Sarah said. In verse 1, to test Israel uh, by them. Uh, in verse 4, for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord. Now, you might say, you might ask, does God not know whether or not they would be faithful without this testing. Um, God knows, but God reveals to us who we are in the midst of trials. I would say this, though. From God's standpoint, His testing 
is positive. His testing is for the purpose of strengthening, building us up, and not destroying. Now, what passage would I give for that? Proverbs 17, verse 3. Proverbs 17, verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. That's Proverbs 17, verse 3. God's purpose in testing is just like the gold is put and the silver is put into the furnace in order to strengthen them and purify them. Did that work in Genesis 22? When God called Abraham, God tested Abraham and called him to offer Isaac. Did it result in Abraham's faith being strengthened? Yes. Remember what he names the place. Um, He says, in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So it had a positive outcome, but whether or not it has a positive outcome is dependent on us, isn't it? Dependent on whether or not we walk in His ways, but that is God's intent. That is God's purpose. Now, there are several times that He said to test Israel. He tested them in giving them manna. Deuteronomy 8 in verse 2. Okay. Um, look at 3, 1, and 2. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all those who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it formally. So one of the purposes of God leaving the nations is that some of these people had not experienced war and God wanted them to be taught war. What does that mean? What does that mean? God wanted them to be taught war. Um, I mean, part of it is just getting the idea of battling and like, like spiritual battles, the concept of a battle, of a war, of, of a competition like that. Um, in addition, when it's done right, it, warfare is very disciplined. Okay. I mean, and learning to, learning to follow the orders and command. I mean. Do you listen to your commander, or do you? You have you have to you have to have some amount of cohesion and discipline to to, to win about. And uh, Ryan, I, mean, I think God's original vision for them was peace. Beating your swords and plowshares, but given the choices that they've made, they're going to have more in their future. Okay, they might as well get ready for it. Okay, okay. And what y'all are saying is right. Let me add this question. How were biblical battles and biblical wars won? Faith in God. In a certain sense, I think they are going to have battles. They are going to have conflicts because they have not chosen the way of peace. You know, as, 
as Ryan was saying. But but always, the battles are not won. It's not superior weapons that win the battle. It is not superior numbers that win the battle. What wins the battle is trust and dependence on God. Now, we see this from the first war of the Bible. The first war of the Bible is Genesis 14. Abraham has 300 trained warriors in his house. Now, if you had 300 trained warriors in your house, I consider that pretty well armed, pretty well protected house. But I don't think it matched the army of the four kings he was battling with. Didn't match that. How did they win that battle? They won that battle by trust and dependence upon God. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Uh, Proverb, uh, Psalm 20 and verse 7. We'll remember the name of the Lord our God. So I, I think that God is using these conflicts and using these battles to teach him dependence upon him. Now, that also applies to the New Testament. Can you think of any New Testament passages that talk about things that are difficult for us being good for us? No trial shall befall you that you cannot overcome with God. Okay, okay. Um, God disciplines those he loves. Okay. God disciplines. I'm trying to come up with verses. I'm still waiting for Andrew's verse. Sarah, give me a chance. I think you're talking about Isaiah. It's no weapon formed against us will stand. Is kind of Isaiah 54, 17. I don't know if that's, you know, now the job is yours. Okay, what's your verse? In Hebrews, God disciplines those who love. Okay, Hebrews 12. Okay, Hebrews 12. I was thinking particularly, too, of, of James 1, rejoice when you fall into trials, and the same kind of passage in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. So, in these passages of Scripture, you see that trials may be good. Why would trials be good? Just like why would wars be good? Why would it? Because they're going to teach you dependence upon God. And by the way, I don't know if I spelled dependence right, but, but, but you get the idea. I don't know if it's an E or an A at the end. Sarah, what, what is, what's your thought? Um, and wars and, and the battle and all of it, and kind of what you're talking about, the testing, it teaches us more about ourselves than, I mean... God knows how we're going to perform in the test. Yeah. But we don't. We don't know that, oh, yeah, I can stand firm. Or, well, okay, I guess I can't. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I'm not using my current methodology, that kind of a thing. So. And, and to see that warf- warfare is not easy, and it doesn't always work like it did with Gideon. You just blow a little trumpet and, you know. Yeah, but it still, I mean, it took a lot of faith to get to that point that they blew that trumpet. Because you, you're attacking, you're making an offensive attack with 300 people against 130,000. That, that takes a little bit of faith. Uh, so, but I do think sometimes, just like battles for Israel and trials for us, have you sometimes 
been surprised at how you responded to trial. Not only does it surprise somebody else, maybe, but sometimes it surprises you. And sometimes it reveals weaknesses or deficiencies in areas you would have thought you were doing well. And God is testing them and wants them to talk war. And, and, and all y'all said is, is right, but, but ultimately all of that ties with trusting in God in what was really a life and death struggle. You know, we're not talking about, when we're talking about war, something like an athletic competition, you win or you lose. If you lose, you're usually dead. And so to trust God in the midst of those circumstances is, it is difficult. And um, may God help us all to learn these values in the midst of that. And we are not uh, thinking about just any competition or just battles either. It's like when we are faced with tragedies. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Yes, any kind of calamity or difficulty or tragedy that comes to us can fall into these categories. You're exactly right. You say, I saw Andrew and then Brad as well. Um, the verse I was thinking of is 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 13, that no temptation is overcome. Okay. okay, very good. Good verse. Um, and I think you see maybe a little bit more about the test in the next verse or verse 4. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's command which he had given their ancestors from Moses. So the test is like you have, like you have trust and dependence on God. Are you going to trust Him that if you do what He says, He will drive out all the nations? Yeah. Or, um, or are you going to trust in yourself or fear the nations around you? Exactly. Yes. I think Boyd might have had it. Okay. Paul's life illustrates that. When I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Okay. That's right. Yes, Second Corinthians twelve ten, I believe. Yes, it, when he was weak, um, he was often recognized his greatest dependence on God. And if that was true of him, you know, is that true of us? That sometimes when we're at our weakest, we are most conscious of our dependence on Him. But in um, in verse, verses 3 through 6, the Bible says, These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount uh, Baal-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamoth. They were for testing Israel to find out if he would if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites the Hittites the Amorites the Perizzites the Hivites and Jebusites they took their daughters for themselves as wives they gave their own daughters as their sons and they served other gods 
just a note on verses 3 and 4. Are those always the nations that were mentioned in Deuteronomy and Joshua? Were those always the nations that were mentioned there? Jose, I... A lot of times there are seven. And there are seven. And do they usually include... The Sidonians are new. Sidon is new. And there's somebody else that's new in that list. Philistines. Yeah, Philistines. Philistines are new. Sidon is new. And a lot of times, they're most... Seven is the most expansive outside of Genesis 15. Genesis 15, I think, mentions... um, it mentions ten nations. But but Deuteronomy 7 mentions seven, and that's more common, as Ryan mentioned. But the Philistines that Brad mentioned, Sarah mentions the Sidonians. The point is, the people who are dwelling in the land may change over time. You know, the, the enemies that they have to encounter, that may change at one point or another, but it's still the same basic command. God said... To eliminate them. And I know that may sound cruel and careless, cruel and cold, but God has a purpose for it. And what we see here in verses 5 and 6, we have three steps in these passages. Three verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, He First of all, they lived they lived among the Canaanites. Now Brad was teaching when we were in that first chapter, but you remember sometimes it says the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. And then about verse 32, it changes and says Asher, for example, lived among the Canaanites. Did I say that right both times? First they're living among the Israelites, the Canaanites are living among the Israelites, but then the Israelites are living among them. And that is the situation here. The situation in verses 5 and 6, verse 5, is a lot like that described in 132 and 33. They lived among the Canaanites. Then, after they lived among them, the Bible says they took their daughters as wives. They took their daughters as wives. They married them. They live among them. They took their daughters as wives. And what is the last step? The last step is they uh, served their God. Now, there is an excellent commentary by Daniel Block in the New American Standard series. Um, I don't know if I should recommend you buy it because if you do, I'm not going to have anything to say. Uh, that's gonna <laughs> it's gonna stretch it too much. Uh, so, but this is an excellent commentary. In, in my thoughts, I, I altered a little bit, just one step of this, 
But this is what he has. He says, what we have in these three stages is territorial territorial accommodation. Territorial accommodation. Then they took their daughters as wives 